The following is sponsored by the Logos Bible Study Platform. Visit logos.com slash go to get started. And hear more at the conclusion of today's podcast. This is Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth. Well, how can we have three that are named when the hallmark of Old Testament liturgy and theology is that there is one God. If you're seeking an answer to that, you're not going to find a nice vocab word in scripture that immediately solves the problem for us. Hello and welcome to Theology on the Go. I am Jonathan Master, joined as always by my friend, co-host, James Dalzell. James, how are you today? Jonathan, I'm great. Looking forward to uh, a return guest from a couple of years ago. Yeah, this is a guest that we've talked about wanting back on whenever the opportunity presented itself. Really enjoyed our conversation with him. I, it's hard to believe it's been a few years, but enjoyed our conversation with him. Glenn Butner, and Glenn is at Sterling College, and he also directs the honors program there. But today, we're having him on to discuss a book that he's just written called Trinitarian Dogmatics, Exploring the Grammar of the Christian Doctrine of God. And James, both you and I, when we saw that this was coming out, uh, were, were immediately very interested in it. And so, Glenn, thanks for joining us today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. And sorry it took so long to write something else so you could have me back. <laughs> well, I know. I hope you're working on something so that in six months you can come back on and discuss it. Maybe, maybe we'll do part no, two no, of this, be, of this be, book. No, take a little more time than six months. <laughs> no, that's right. Good. good advice. No, I mean, we really appreciate it. We appreciate the work that, that you've done and, and uh, the time the time you've taken has, has really borne great fruit. So I want to begin, though, just by introducing the basics of the book. Uh, it's it's The subtitle, as I said, is Exploring the Grammar of the Christian Doctrine of God. And that might be unfamiliar language. Usually when we think of grammar, we just think in terms of you know uh, parts of speech or vocabulary words or that kind of thing. So, so why do we need to learn the grammar of the Trinity? And why this approach to that topic? Great question. I like the word grammar and uh, full disclosure, actually, I'm terrible at titles, so I couldn't come up with a subtitle. That was Baker Academic summarizing my work. Um, <laughs> and they did a phenomenal job. They ran it by me. I said, I love it. Let's run with it. Um, grammar refers you know, to the underlying rules of how you would structure a sentence. And I like to think of the doctrine of the Trinity as laying out the underlying rules of theology, which structure all other doctrines that we might engage with. So I don't have time in the book to dig into atonement and justification and ecclesiology. But I think if you have a deficient Trinitarian theology, that you can't really outline those other doctrines correctly. So I'm hoping in this book to give us those foundations and that grammar of who God is as Father, Son, and Spirit, so that we can then go out and do things with theological words. Who's the intended audience then? Th sometimes we think of grammar in, in that sort of basic building block kind of sense. Is that is that is that how you envisioned it when you were writing this? Um, it would all depend on what you mean by basic. <laughs> so I would say if you have no familiarity with theology, this is not the book to start. Mm -hmm. um, I targeted master's students, but hopefully with enough new perspectives and content that it's still a benefit for specialists, doctoral students, professors. My goal was by adding things like, you know, a glossary and further recommended reading and trying to proceed fairly slowly, 
that master's students could keep up. But I tried to cover a wide enough span of subjects and topics that it would still be beneficial for others. I'll propose that it will also be remedial. Uh, I, my, my wife was a linguistic major in college. And uh, when we started dating, I realized that I needed help with grammar. <laughs> and, and I had been talking for a while by that point uh, since I was one. Uh, but my grammar was messy. So I wonder if you, I wonder if just kind of in the background of this, there's a problem maybe that needs addressing with our God talk generally, just as, as kind of Western evangelical Protestants, uh, do we, do we need to go and relearn the grammar? Um, it, it just feels like we've, I've been talking for a long time. I know what I'm talking about. And then yes, do we need that's that a great way to put it. Um, and I may actually take that from you and use it when I'm asked in the future. I'll, I'll give you credit, but I really like that. I think each generation is able to look back and really see clearly the blind spots of the prior generation. And so we have a number of those in Trinitarian theology still extending into today, but a lot of classical dimensions of that doctrine have been questioned and rejected by a number of important figures in the last 50, 100 years. Um, so everything from eternal generation to inseparable operations, while at the same time, we have other doctrines that have been neglected and perhaps partially forgotten. Um, so things like simplicity that your work has helped bring back to the center of discussion. And I'm hoping to overcome some of those rules that we've forgotten and explain how they're rooted in scripture and found across the tradition and why they're relevant for systematic theology. And I'm sure 20 years from now, somebody will look back and find big gaps in my book, Lord willing, they're there aren't too many, um, but for now, I'm doing the best I can to help us relearn that grammar and get on course. I think when Jonathan and I were doing our MDivs, I'll, I'm guessing, Jonathan, there wasn't a book, sort of a contemporary book quite like this available to us. Um, I, I mean, obviously, there'd be some overlap uh, with some of those books, but they covered some of the grammar. And so I wonder, let me just, well, let's do this first, and then I, then I want to ask about a couple of particulars. Sure. Kind of the um, scope and sequence of the book, if we can think of it this way, is there a necessary, or if that's too strong of a word, um, more beneficial way to think through the grammar? In other words, when you do a grammar for a child or remedially for an adult, there are certain principles that have to be learned first before you start to elaborate or extrapolate. So is is the Trinitarian grammar just something that you can drop in anywhere you like, or is there a certain progression and does your book itself, do you envision a progression in your book? Well, and, and if I could add to that question uh, before you answer, I, I wondered very specifically along those lines, you start with consubstantiality. So, so maybe you can even get very concrete. Is that the place to start? Obviously that's where you did start. So yeah. And addressing James's question, maybe you could address that's the starting place. Sure. I imagine there are different ways that you could go through teaching grammar, both Trinitarian and you know English grammar, but there are going to be a limited set of options. Some things naturally build on other things. So I've put forward my way of thinking about the Trinity, what I think is helpful. And I start with consubstantiality because I, I think there's a tendency, sometimes people say, well, I believe that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are consubstantial. They're homoousios. I can accept the Nicene Creed, therefore I am Trinitarian. And actually, you know, if you look at the debates all the way back between pro and anti and non-Nicenes, you see that that term homoousios has a lot of ambiguity to it. So it's an essential starting point. 
we have to be able to say Father, Son, and Holy Spirit share all essential attributes together. But there are a number of questions that that raises. You know, does that mean they are members of a genus? Um, if they're not members of a genus, how can they be eternally distinct? Um, and such questions are inevitably going to drive us to topics I cover in my subsequent chapters. So the eternal processions or divine simplicity to show that consubstantiality can't involve a genus or inseparable operations. Um, so I'm hoping to start with something I think familiar to many people who might pick up the book and read it and raise questions about that to push them to sort of sub doctrines of Trinitarian theology that they might not be as familiar with, but that in my mind, at least have been more helpful for me to understand the tradition and what scripture is trying to teach. I think it's easy for us to think that the term homoousios was itself uh, self-apparent in its con conceptuality and undisputed, but you're right. There was, because that term can, that term had been even before Nicaea used as a kind of um, generic unity, um, but that can't be the way we think of the Trinity if we want to avoid tritheism or social Trinitarianism. So you start with a familiar term, uh, but then you problematize it a little bit, I guess, by saying it's not as self-evident. Uh, so, all right. So you begin with unity. You begin with right. the oneness. Um, maybe just briefly, we don't have to camp on this, but you know, you identify it in your book that there's a recent trend in especially Protestant theology to begin with plurality rather than unity. And that unity is supposedly um, a prejudicial, perhaps even a Greek and more metaphysical way of approaching, and therefore it's wrong. Um, you say no. Um, why not? Why begin with unity? Is that still a helpful way to start? Right. There are a number of narratives, and I think much 20th century theology loves a good narrative about where theology went wrong and how it declined. There are a number of narratives that would say a big problem in the loss of Trinitarianism or in the loss of the Holy Spirit and pneumatology would be starting with the oneness of God. Um, broadly, a number of those narratives can be grouped together under the De Reunion paradigm. It's sometimes called after a French Thomist um, about a century and a half ago who suggested there were two basic approaches to the Trinity, Eastern and Western, um, whereas the Western, the Latin version, focused on the oneness and never really explained how God was three. We obviously want a threefold God. We want eternally distinct persons. And so I think a lot of people were kind of scared for a while about starting with that oneness. And I think we're starting to see the turn of that in a lot of different theological perspectives. So I think of Catherine Sonderegger's recent theology says, no, we need to start with the oneness and that's totally acceptable. I'm a bit of a different flavor of theology than her in a number of respects, but I agree we can start with the oneness. And in fact, that has a can, uh, canonical sensibility in my mind in that the oneness of God is far clearer in the Old Testament than the you know, threefoldness of God, than the personal distinctions. And throughout the book, I try to show, yes, there are these distinctions even hinted at and glimpsed in various places in the Old Testament. Um, but I think it's completely appropriate to begin with that oneness and it follows that biblical logic. In terms of some of the larger concerns, though, I have seen instances where theologies can't fully articulate that threefoldness of God. Um, and so I've tried to adopt the strategy of Gregory of Nazianzus of alternating 
Um, he says, once you think of the oneness, you immediately need to turn to the threeness, vice versa. So even in a chapter on oneness, I'll repeatedly try and say, but this unity needs to be normed by the threefold nature of God um, or the threefold personhood, excuse me, of God. Um, and then when I'm speaking of threeness, I'll explain how procession can't divide that unity because of things like divine simplicity. So I hope to strike a balance. And you might say the starting point is really important with the unity, but I also end the book with discussion of how we can have unique communion with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in our spirituality and worship. And I think that ending point is important as well. And nobody's perfectly balanced, but I've done the best that I can. And I hope avoided some of the concerns of those larger narratives along the way. No, I think you, I think you've the Cappadocian Bali of when I think of the one, I'm, I'm immediately thrown to the three. And when I think of the three back to the one, uh, the ordering of your, the ordering of your chapters clearly indicates that you've embraced that. Uh, and I think benefit, I think beneficial. Well, good. Thanks. Glenn, I'm wondering, um, it, when someone's coming into this in a serious way for the first time, even the language of grammar might make someone think about the need to understand philosophy. Um, how can philosophy be used in doing Trinitarian theology? I mean, you you obviously make reference to the biblical text, but you're also using philosophical categories. How is it that you would articulate the relationship between those two, the need for both, as it were, in order to, to do this well? Right. I like to explain to my students that one of the hallmarks of something like a dogmatic or systematic theology that sets it apart from pure biblical theology is we tend to explore questions that are sort of demanded by the biblical text, but may not be explicitly answered by the biblical text. So it's very clear that Jesus receives worship or that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are incorporated into the cultic worship of you know, baptism. So by cultic, I mean sort of formal liturgical communal worship. So we see that in benedictions in the New Testament. We see that in baptism. I cover that in my first chapter. And that immediately presents us with the question of, well, how can we have three that are named as we are worshiping when the hallmark of Old Testament liturgy and theology is that there is one God? And there's a lot of data there from scripture that we can draw on, but finding a way to explain that unity um, if you're seeking an answer to that, you're not going to find a nice vocab word in scripture that immediately solves the problem for us. And so I think we have to answer questions scripture presents, and we have to find answers that fit with what is explicit and clear in scripture. But sometimes that's going to lead us to accept what you know some of the confessions would call a good and necessary consequence of scripture. Um, we would need to say this word, homoousios, or consubstantiality, explains in a philosophical way that we can teach a bit easier, that we can analyze a bit more easily. Um, it teaches the concepts that must be true if what we see happening in the New Testament is valid, that we are incorporating all three into worship. And so I think my approach is something like Anselm of Canterbury's faith-seeking understanding. Scripture gives us what the faith is and what it must be grounded in and what it must be outlined by. Scripture alone is an infallible source of knowledge about God. But once we have that, it's our job as Christians to wrestle with that text and understand it. And that's where I find philosophy and reason to be invaluable partners, of course, as well as things like tradition and experience where we learn from folks from other cultures with different perspectives than our own. That's good. I, I Especially because philosophy is not dictating to the faith, but there's a, there's a handmaiden role, right? That it's, it's coming Certainly. in, it's, it's, it's furnishing us with, with conceptual language that 
actually serves what the text itself requires us to believe, even if the text doesn't make it explicit in that terminology. Exactly. I mean, I guess even the word Trinity, for that matter, is a is a Latin nickname, uh, right. given a few hundred years after the close of the canon. And occasionally you'll get that Unitarian objection, you know, usually they're more sophisticated objections, but sometimes you run into, well, Trinity is not in the Bible. Um, fair enough. I'll grant that point. But what else are you going to name the threeness and oneness pattern that we see? I mean, I'm not wedded to the word Trinity, but I am wedded to the ideas that it embodies. Right. Glenn, as you, as you put this together and, and we talked a little bit about the ordering of the grammar and the significance of that and, and the rationale behind the way in which you ordered it. Did you know all the parts of the grammar that you wanted to include? And what are some perhaps parts or chapters in the book that might uh, surprise people or who, which have surprised your students? Oh, I didn't realize I needed to think about that in order to really get to to the doctrine of the Trinity clearly? Great question. I had a pattern in mind. Um, a, lot of, a lot of factors drove me to write this book. One though is I would teach the Trinity in historical theology and I would teach it in systematic theology and I would teach it briefly when I had intro to the New Testament and I would teach it in spiritual theology and I never integrated all those approaches. And I said, this is kind of problematic. So I wanna try and weave all of these patterns together. but. I began with the structure that I used in historical theology because it was what I taught most extensively. Um, and it was rooted in sort of a traditional approach that I found really helpful. But pretty quickly, I had to start moving things around a little bit. So the chapter on inseparable operations, I think, was in probably five different locations before I finally figured out exactly how I wanted it to fit in. And it became the capstone of my discussion of the unity of the Godhead. And I knew it was important, but I guess I didn't quite realize how how much weight it would end up bearing in my own theology and in the theology of a lot of people in history. So that surprised me. I think the other that surprised me um, is a question that I often kind of surprise my students with. I'll say, when you're worshiping, how do you think about your unique worship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? You know, What's the role of the Spirit in worship? What's the role of the Son? What's the role of the Father? You know, and I just said inseparable operations. So by role, I don't mean that they aren't working together, but just how do we think about this? And often my students can't answer it. And so I tell them, well, if, if you can't really explain something as basic to Christian life as worship in a Trinitarian way, then maybe you're not adequately Trinitarian. And so I lay that gauntlet down and it surprises them and they say, okay, we do need to think about the Trinity more. And so then I surprised myself that chapter eight on communion with the triune God was by far the most difficult for me to write. And I kept searching for sources and it just seemed harder for me to find the right books to guide me through that. And I, I like the chapter, I like the end result, but I think I still have some space to grow there. And so I guess it surprised me that I was a bit of a hypocrite that when I laid the gauntlet down, I couldn't as easily structure koinonia, you know, communion, fellowship with God as robustly as I could, something like consubstantiality or the processions. And so I needed to strengthen that dimension of my argument. And I, I think in many other intros, that is an aspect of the doctrine that is neglected that hopefully will be a welcome surprise to some readers. A little self-indulgent, I was thrilled to see a chapter on simplicity. Uh, <laughs> and more and more that's happening. I think of Scott Swain's little intro uh, introduction to the Trinity, which is a nice little introduction, and he brings up simplicity as well. But I'm th that is that is something old. I mean, that used to be standard, and yet I think that anything I had read on the Trinity 
in college or seminary uh, that was written in the last 100, 150 years made almost no reference whatsoever to the doctrine of simplicity. So I'm, I was excited to see that, but I thought maybe your chapters on um, missions and inseparable operations, uh, because all three of those, simplicity, missions, and inseparable operations uh, are all chapters that I think belong in a Trinity book, but for too long have, uh, have not been included. So just thinking of Jonathan's question, which ones do you think your re- will surprise your readers? Um, those, were, those were my uh, choices on those three. I, th- I think those will surprise some readers. Yeah, I hope so. Um, and knowing your background and simplicity, I reread the chapter last night just to make sure I brought my A game to be ready to talk about it. So no, I'm, I, I thought it was well done. I think I saw it in draft form uh, yes. a couple of years ago, that. and remember liking it very much at that time. So, uh, but I think it's the question. I got that question after. Well, if God is simple, that's all well and good. But yeah, what about the Trinity? And to realize that it's not just a matter of doing the calculus and making simplicity fit. It's a question of whether you can have a traditionally orthodox doctrine of the Trinity without it. Excellent. Um, so, yeah. and I tell a story in, in that chapter, I was in a philosophy class, a philosophical theology class um, that I was auditing while my wife was getting a counseling degree from a seminary um, had an exceptional philosopher teaching it. I learned a whole lot in the class, but I remember at one point, and I only had, you know, master's level patristic work at this point, but I'd started to develop an interest in the Trinity. And I remember at one point he said, simplicity was an idea that was held just so that God wouldn't fall apart. And I found myself thinking, well, no, this is actually a very important centerpiece of the doctrine of the Trinity. And so I pushed back a little bit on it. And he told me, you're asking excellent questions. These are great ideas. You should write on it. And so many years later, I'm finally able to answer that challenge. But the way I see it, without simplicity, then much of the patristic doctrine of the Trinity either completely falls apart or has to be radically revised in ways that I can't even fathom. So I think it's a vital chapter. Dr. Butner, thanks so much for joining us today. I wish we had more time. I, I know we could go chapter by chapter through this uh, and it would be, it would we'd learn a lot and it would be profitable. But uh, thank you for giving us the time you had, and also really do thank you for for your labors in this book. Uh, we commend it to our listeners. We'll talk for a few minutes about it, even after you're you're off the air. Just just letting them know a little more about what to expect and and commending it to them. So thank you very much. Yep. Thank you so much for having me, James. You and I have been. Uh, united in our appreciation for Glenn Butner uh, and his earlier work. And I think we both feel the same way about this book. We'd recommend it. You were just talking off the air about a pastor friend that you gave it to who really appreciated uh, what's what uh, Dr. Butner has done in this volume. And, uh, you know, there, there, there are a lot of things and a lot more as the years progress being written on the Trinity. And, and I think we would put this in, in, uh, among those top tier books uh, of ones we'd recommend to people. I told a friend last summer that I, that I sometimes am tempted to feel Trinity book fatigue, not Trinity fatigue. So we're clear, but Trinity book fatigue, just in that in a way it's exciting. There are just better books being written on the Trinity right now by, by several Catholics and Protestants that are better than the things that were the contemporary things available to us when we were doing our divinity training. Right. Uh, all for which I'm thankful. 
And there are, and even written at different levels, introductory levels, more intense studies. Um, th- there's a kind of Trinitarian Renaissance going on right now that is that I think can only be good for the church. When I thought when I saw Glenn's contribution, I had seen part of it a couple of years ago in preparation stage. But this is I, I think what he does by kind of by taking this approach of training us how to speak about this and ordering the concepts in a way in which they they logically develop and the next stage sort of is needed to develop the previous one. I think there's, and especially with his um, glossary at the end of the book, I think this one is really suited for an MDiv classroom and for the pastor who needs to sort of tinker with his God talk uh, and stop, as it were, metaphorically dangling his prepositions uh, when it comes to how we, how we speak about the triune God uh, and I think this book is going to be a, a significant help. Uh, so no fatigue here. Well, I agree with that. And I'll also say this. Um, some of our listeners may have picked up on the fact that he mentioned inseparable operations as a doctrine that surprised him or or it surprised him the extent to which uh, it, it became central in his thinking. Um, and and just a reminder, we did an interview uh, a little while back with Adonis Vidu in about his book, "The Same God Who Works All Things: Inseparable Operations in Trinitarian Theology." Now that is a that is a more technical book, but just a reminder to our listeners: if you want to really beef up on that particular doctrine, which is one chapter in Trinitarian dogmatics, but is the whole book that Adonis Vidu has written, uh, I would I would certainly point them back to that. And maybe maybe use Dr. Butner's book as a gateway if you need to kind of um, you know till the field a little bit before you dive into uh, Dr. Vidu's book. I think the chapter in this in Dr. Butner's book, uh, Trinitarian Dogmatics, is going to be a nice kind of mid-level preparation for that heavier study that Vidu does. Well, if you'd like the opportunity to win a copy of Trinitarian Dogmatics, Exploring the Grammar of the Christian Doctrine of God, you can go to placefortruth.org, click up the, on the Theology on the Go link, and there'll be an opportunity there for you to enter your information, and and we have a couple of these to give away. So if your name gets selected, we'd be glad to send you one. If you know anyone who might be helped by this episode or this podcast in general, please pass that along to them. If you're able to rate and review the podcast, that makes a big difference. And if you have questions, send them in to us. And then, of course, if you're able to donate to the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, you can do that at alliancenet.org or placefortruth.org. And thank you, as always, for listening to Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth. According to a recent survey, 30% of evangelical churchgoers want more in-depth teaching. If you want to go deeper into the Word, Logos is the Bible study platform for you. Logos fuses powerful technology with biblical resources. Access Bibles, search tools, commentaries, seminary-level courses, even audiobooks right on your phone, tablet, or desktop. Logos offers nearly 200,000 digital books from the world's top publishers. Logos editions have been turbocharged with power data that connect them with the rest of your library. So whether you're comparing Bible translations, tackling tough topics, or studying deep theological issues, Logos has you covered. 
Dig into the original language resources without even knowing Greek or Hebrew, and Logos will even help you pronounce the words. Pastors and scholars like John Piper, Matt Chandler, and Eric Mason use Logos in their study and sermon prep. Get started with Logos today for just $49. Go to logos.com slash go. That's logos.com slash go. 